Well, it, it is good to worship with you this morning, brothers and sisters, and no matter who you are, no matter who you are, there's a fundamental yet elusive question that we all wrestle with. And here's the question. How do people change? Now, you may look out at a world full of people different than you, and you wish they would change. We want political leaders to change their policies. We want children to change their attitude. Sorry, kids. We want parents to change their expectation. Right, kids? We want love interest to change their gaze, maybe towards our direction. We want people to change their worldview. We want those in our church to change their loyalty to Christ. We want the Green Bay Packers to change their quarterback. What? Oh, praise God. It happened. Praise God. However, as faithful followers of Christ, we don't just look out on the change that we want to see in other people. We look in first. And so maybe you have that question personally. How can I change? See, when we truly follow Jesus, we want to know how we can lay aside sin, pride, anger, lust, laziness, hypocrisy, unfaithfulness, and all the rest. How can I do it? In fact, this may be why many of you are here this morning. You come to church hoping that your attendance, your engagement, your worship of God on a Sunday morning will change something. Whether in your own heart or in your circumstances. God's people in the book of Joel, even as we saw in our opening verses last week, they were wrestling with the same question. Something has to change. God's people had sinned. The blame had fallen on them. The land is destroyed. The vine is dry. The fruit is dried. The joy is dried. So where do we go from here? The prophet Joel in our section today has a word for them and for us as we desire change. Our main idea this morning will simply be this. A change of heart brings the change you need. And not just the change you need, the change you want. A change of heart. So read with me please in Joel 1. I'll start in verse 13. The prophet Joel says this. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in. Pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the Almighty 
it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and the flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Well, this is God's word. And there's a very human tendency If you have blood running through your veins this morning, there's a human tendency of us all to manufacture and manipulate change, especially in our relationships. If we just try hard enough, if we guilt someone, or if we post on social media, if we give someone the cold shoulder, if we just put in enough "Mm, work personally, or my favorite, if we just complain enough, Things will bring change. These things will produce something, or so we think. Judah struggled with this, no doubt, as we do today. Our 21st century American Western context is especially troubling. We'll get to that. Joel speaks toward the change that Judah and we all need. So first in our passage we see that God's people repent. Verses 13 and 14. What should stand out to us, rather what stands out to me in verse 13, is that the attire, what the priests are wearing, it isn't appropriate. In fact, they are told to change their clothes quite literally. See, under the old covenant stipulations, there was a prescribed way that the religious leaders of the day should dress. Now, Jesus kind of broke this mold in his day when he came around. Jesus was prophet, priest, and king who dressed as the common people of his day did. But in Joel's day, in God's law, there was a formality required. Here, Joel tells the priests to replace their ornately embroidered robes and put on plain, scratchy sackcloth woven with goat's hair. Try to sleep in that. And as was practiced in their day, sackcloth, it was supposed to be a visible display of their heart. So off with the cute. Off with the proper. Get rid of the formal. Your fancy dress isn't going to do anything. I want your heart. But more than what they were wearing, what is their responsibility? Joel continues, as we read, that they were to dress like this all through the night. They were, in verse 14, to call for a fast and a solemn assembly. The leaders of the community, all the inhabitants, men, women, children, gather around. We're being called to action. We're being called to cry out. There's a call for repentance. But focusing on the priests, these ministers, for a moment... What exactly is their responsibility in this passage? They are called to initiate 
spiritual realities for the people of God. They were called on by God to lead God's people in a spiritual way. So these priests are modeling what they want to see in their people. So off with the platitudes and the show, humility, sackcloth, a broken heart. That's what God desires and that's what these priests were demonstrating to Judah. The spiritual leaders of God's people are called to wake them up to the reality, the presence, and the promises of God. The spiritual leaders of God's people are called to bring awareness and to bring people closer to God so that God would do His work. So that God would shape in them, change in them the things that He needed. So that God would produce in them a different kind of life. Verses 13 and 14 of this passage show us that spiritual leaders aren't called to change anyone. They are simply, as one author put it, they are the instruments in the Redeemer's hand. He brings the change. But notice in verses 13 and 14 the corporate nature of all this. This solemn assembly. Now, depending on what translation you might have, there's probably about 12 times in the Old Testament that these kind of assemblies come up in the Old Testament. The word carry is kind of hidden. The word carries with it the idea of restraint. In fact, it was a day in which no one was to do any work. It wasn't simply an invitation to come, repent, and pray. It was a day to restrain yourself from other endeavors and to give yourself over to God. Joel's call to Judah wasn't just to feel bad or sorry for their sin. He was calling them to restrain from living life as if things were fine. You know what I'm talking about. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. How's work? Fine. The kids? Fine. It's all fine. In my best Jerry Seinfeld impression. It's okay, the first service, they didn't laugh at that one either. But he was calling them not to say, oh, it's all fine. He was calling them to come and pray, to fast, to cry, and to corporately, not just individually, corporately confess. Whose fault was it that their land had been destroyed? Why did God send the army of locusts to punish them? It's because the people of God had been unfaithful. The army of circumstance before them was their collective fault. And things were not fine. Now, if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to last week's passage as we considered and covered Judah's sin more fully. But here, in these verses, there's some kind of continuity, some kind of connectedness for us That meets us here. Even though we're not under the old covenant. We're under the new. There's some application here. So two items that stand out in verses 13 and 14. First. And this is a little self-serving. But you'll get over it. I, I think it's important to see a correlation here. The Old Testament priests had a certain vocational responsibility. A position. Their job was to wake people up to the realities of God. And in a similar way. The pastors of Lakewood Church are to do the same. Much like the priests, they were to do the same. 
Pastors are not the Holy Spirit. We do not change people's hearts. We do not change the world around us. But much like those priests, we provide spiritual direction. We aim to put people in a position to experience God's call on their life. So my friends, it's right. It's right that we would put weight on the spiritual vocational leaders of our communities and ask them to model what they're calling their people to. That's what Joel was saying. Hey, priest, lament, cry, wail. What you're calling your people to do, that's what you should do first. And I'll say unashamedly, if there is ever a time that one of the pastors of Lakewood Church, including myself, if we ever fail to model what we're asking you to do, then you need to fire that man. Because God's leaders, spiritual leaders in the church and in the Old Testament passage were called to initiate, to model, to wake people up to the presence of God. And if there comes a day where I or someone else is not doing that, you need to politely ask us to leave. You didn't think I was going to go there, did you? <laughs> You see, to see change, God calls his people to repent. And it starts with leaders. And in turn, they help the community to do the same. But there's a second area of application here that I think is really helpful. God's people have always been called to a corporate kind of life. Lakewood's core value of being committed to relational community, it's not just some cute we throw on a wall. It's actually deeply rooted in Old Testament texts like this one. When we desire to see change in our world and in our hearts, there is a time and a place for the people of God to collectively and formally come together and cry out. God's people are not passive when it comes to change. And we don't seek to simply do it individually. Even today, as we come together on the Lord's Day, on a Sunday, we assemble. We come and we worship. We come collectively. What are we doing here this morning, by the way? We come collectively to seek change. So think about the worship service that you've been a part of so far. We sing songs about God's character and His work. Why? Seeking change in our own hearts. We give money locally and to the ends of the earth so the gospel would go out. Why? So that there'd be change. Every Sunday we pray for local and national leaders and ministries so there would be change in our community. We sit under God's word collectively. We pray and confess sin and we confess our need collectively so that change would come in our daily lives and in our daily decisions. God has always, always called his people to gather, to assemble, and to seek change as we repent and help others do the same. Change, the change you want. It happens in the context of community. It's always been that way. But Joel, he doesn't simply call his people and us to repent. He calls his people to look forward. So God's people are always, when they seek change, God's people are always looking forward. So we see this in verses 15 through 18. 
we are introduced to an important biblical phrase in both the Old and New Testament. This phrase in verse 15, look again. The day of the Lord. You may have heard that before. See, in these verses, the prophet describes a coming future day. A day that is near and full of destruction from God. (laughs) During the first service, as soon as I said that, uh, a baby started crying. And I said, they get it. Because in Joel's day, they, they would have been shocked to hear verse 15. Shocked. Wait, 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 wait a second. A once in a lifetime event has just happened. Our version of 9-11 has just happened. You've told us to tell every generation we'll never forget it. The locusts, they've already come. The land has been destroyed. Our lives are forever altered. Our economy is in shambles. God is far off because we can't worship in the temple. All of this has happened? And you're telling us that another day is coming? Destruction is on the way? What has this been? What have I been going through? How can it get worse? To stress the awfulness of the future day, Joel reminds Judah of their current situation. So verse 16, the food and the joy are gone. Verse 17, the storehouses are depleted. There's no eggs, no toilet paper. There's no backup. Verse 18, even the beasts groan and wander aimlessly. See, it's not just God's people that feel the weight and consequence of their sin. The animals feel it too. When you go home, And your dog looks at you, he feels it, he knows. That's what he's saying. As bad as all this is, you haven't seen anything yet, the prophet says. So go back up and look at verse 15, this day of the Lord. And just so you know, the rest of the book of Joel is about this day of the Lord. So we'll cover the term more fully as we go through the chapters that lie ahead. But Joel references this expression in a fuller way than all the Old Testament prophets. So, taking Joel at face value initially, verse 15, the day of the Lord is near and full of destruction. God had sent an army of locusts to punish Judah for their unfaithfulness to the old covenant law. Now, God, the Almighty, is bringing more. Here's how one writer summarizes it. Quote, the phrase, the day of Yahweh, refers both to the ultimate time when Yahweh will punish and restore slash recreate the whole world. In this context, therefore, day refers more to an event in time rather than an extent of time. God's prophets and apostles identify the day of the Lord as the climactic event when God establishes sovereignty, eradicates all evil, and brings lasting peace on a universal scale. So this, <laughs> this is heavy, is it not? Essentially, God's punishment of his people for their unfaithfulness is unfinished. Another day is coming. Yes, as we will see in chapter 3, God does have a word for the world at large. Through Joel, God will tell the nations, the unbelieving world, that he'll hold them accountable for their actions. But who does God start with? 
Who's the first people that God comes to and says, destruction's coming? He starts with his own covenant children. As Judah recognizes that things must change, they are forced first to look at themselves. Not just in the immediate context of locusts coming, but verse 15, in the context of looking forward to another day when they will be held liable. Brothers and sisters, I, I wonder if we have room for this today in our theology and context. When the Old Testament prophets looked out and spoke of a future judgment that would one day come, that judgment includes us in our contemporary times. So think for a moment where we've spent some of the last months over the winter in the spring in the Gospel of Matthew. John the baptizer, in talking about the near coming, the coming of the Messiah, Jesus is coming. This is what he says. John the Baptist says, He who is coming after me, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The coming Messiah. The coming Messiah is to fulfill the proclamation that Joel just made in chapter 1. Jesus himself, in his initial coming, when he first came, what he did on this earth, he's bringing with him the reality of judgment and restoration that all the Old Testament prophets pointed toward. Jesus, as did his disciples, they also taught of a second coming of Jesus that predicted the fulfillment of Joel 1. So you can think of passages like Matthew 24. Jesus says the Son of Man will come to judge at a time that will catch us off guard. 2 Peter 3, we have the restored disciple, Peter, saying that the day of the Lord will come and usher in judgment and a new heavens and a new earth. Paul, 2 Thessalonians 1, reminds faithful followers of Christ to live worthy of the kingdom of God as Christ's coming at the end of human history will bring destruction. Joel's message of judgment on God's people and this world is picked up and amplified as we see that Jesus himself will be the one who carries out that promise. However, aren't you glad there's good news? However, Jesus did something that Joel and the prophets didn't fully see or didn't fully anticipate. Yes, there will be a someday conclusion to Joel 1 and the passages we just mentioned. However, there is an already but not yet fulfillment of Joel's prediction of verse 15 and the day of the Lord. In part, the day of the Lord has already begun. The death and resurrection of Jesus has put into motion the judgment and restoration of Joel's words. So we'll see this more in the weeks ahead. But the darkness and hope of Joel's day of the Lord is cracked open on the cross. The synoptic gospels, those similar accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give the historical scene as Jesus hung. You may be familiar. 
It was about the sixth hour. The darkness that the prophets predicted had come. The sun failed. The curtain in the temple was torn. And the judgment of God in Joel 1, the destruction of the day of the Lord, fell upon Jesus, the innocent sufferer who experienced destruction and pain for his people. And not long after, Peter stands up before a crowd in Acts 2, proclaiming that the day of the Lord, the promises of restoration by God's Spirit had begun. And he quoted Joel 2. So what's, what's the point? Jesus' first coming, his perfect obedient life, his sacrificial death on the cross, his literal physical resurrection from the grave, it all signaled the dawn of the day of the Lord and with it a new creation. Jesus brings the fulfillment of the day that Joel speaks of. Here's how one minister summarized it. At the cross, God poured his end time wrath out on Christ on behalf of the many he would count as righteous. At the cross, Jesus was judging the world, casting out its evil ruler, drawing people to himself. For us, Jesus became sin and a curse. We were once God's enemies bound for destruction of Joel 1. But now, having been justified by Christ's blood, we will be saved from the wrath of God that is still to come. At the cross, God initiated in the middle of history what the Old Testament writers anticipated would happen at the end of history. And now, believers are protected from the final day of fury because Christ has already borne our penalty. My friends, that is the gospel. That is the good news of Christ. Joel had the people of Judah look forward and live in light of a day where the judgment of God would fall upon them. Judah, in that moment, in our passage, they would be pressed to see their need of a way to be reconciled to God. Judah, in that moment, in this passage, they would be spurred on to live a life of integrity and faithfulness, knowing that they would be held accountable first for their thoughts, their actions, and their words. As Christians today, my friends, we do the same. What will bring change in Judah's life and in our life? A changed heart that has a forward-looking posture. A forward looking through the work of Christ to the end of the age. So there's some kids in here. Kids, as you plan to enjoy the next couple months of summer, or adults, as you navigate the summer and what it may or may not bring, what would it look like, Lakewood, if we lived and operated in a way that kept eternity at the forefront? Would that not change our lives? Certainly our summer. Eternity at the forefront. Judgment and restoration. How would our marriages, our jobs, 
our wrestling with sin, our plan for retirement, all of it, how would it change if we looked forward to the day of the Lord? If we ourselves were truly changed by the work of Christ and his initial fulfillment and looked to the final fulfillment of destruction and the final fulfillment of restoration, peace, and joy. Where you have your eyes, what you're looking toward, what your life is pointed at, that will determine what kind of change that you see. But finally, consider that with real change, God's people pray. We see this in Job's, uh, Joel's personal plea in verses 19 and 20. Faithful followers of Christ have a healthy, a healthy desperation to life. Do you want to know when God has seemed the most near to your life and mine? When we're desperate. When do we pray when we see our need of him? There's a healthy desperation to the Christian life. A dependence, a reliance, an abandonment of self and a clinging to a good God. Joel, he isn't simply a spectator to Judah's situation, is he? Verse 19 and 20. He places himself in their midst and he cries out. He sees the destruction and fire of a land that once was. And he doesn't simply go tell the priests and the elders and the inhabitants to assemble and plead to God. He himself does it. The change that Judah needed individually and collectively... The change that we need individually, the change our church needs, the change our community and country needs, it doesn't come through the clever scheming of a minor prophet and some priests. Why does Joel cry out to God? Because God himself is the agent of change. God himself, as his people, put themselves under him as they ask for help, as they pursue faithfulness, as they are men, women, and children of action who repent and look forward. God will show up and do a work in their midst. So if you see a need for change in your hearts and the hearts of those around you, will you be a spectator? Will you simply sit on the side and direct and critique or complain? Or will you do what Joel has done? Will you jump in and cry out and seek to be part of the restoration of all things? So simple question this morning. Do you want things to change? In your life, in your community, in your state, in your country, do you want change? Question. Well, second question. Who are you discipling? Think back to Acts 1 for a second. The resurrected Jesus, he comes to the disciples. He's been teaching them about the kingdom of God for 40 days and 40 nights. And the question the disciples had, aha, yes. Oh, change is coming. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is teaching about the kingdom and the spirit. Things are finally going to change. Can't wait. Oh, Jesus, are things going to change right now? Are you bringing your kingdom now? His response. Don't worry about when the change is going to happen. Let me tell you how 
the change is going to happen. Acts 1. I will put my spirit in my people. They will go out and be witnesses to the ends of the earth and the kingdom of God will be restored. People will be changed. Lives will be altered. How is it that in that upper room, those people receive that message? It was smaller than the group of people here, by the way. In that room, the people in that room was less in number than what sits here today. And that room, by going out and being faithful witnesses to the gospel of Christ, to being on mission, to seeking change by discipling others, the world flipped on its head. You know that Roman government they were worried about? Faithful mission changed it in a number of years. You know the loved ones that they were concerned about, that were far off from God, changed. Probably marriages, jobs, fears, personal sin. What brought change to the early church? They were on mission. They discipled. They shared the gospel with people who were far from God. That's what brought change. So Joel, he prays as he looks out. He doesn't simply say, hey, I hope you guys figure it out. Change is needed. Let me know how it goes. Joel, he jumps in and he prays. Verse 19, the wilderness and the trees are gone. Verse 20, the animals instinctively cry out and they pant for nourishment for the life that God gives. He could make the argument that we too should be like the animals. By instinct, we should pant and moan and long for nourishment, for life, for restoration. And my friends, that is what prayer is. Many of us struggle to know how to pray, to know what to pray. Prayer is a longing and a pleading for God to work. A longing and a pleading for the day of the Lord to come finally and fully. For justice to rule the land. For hearts to be fully restored. For Jesus to return and make all things new and right and beautiful. Why, why do you think we're having a prayer service tonight? Why is that part of the DNA of Lakewood Church? Why do we pray every Sunday morning? Why do we have prayer ushers in the back? Why is there a group of faithful people that come every Tuesday morning to this church and pray? Because we believe ultimately that God works and acts as we ask. Joel's prayer is a prayer for eternity to come down. It's not unlike the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6 that we covered earlier this year. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What brings true change to our hearts and the world around us? A heart that is captivated and controlled by the gospel realities of Jesus. A heart that comes to the Father in Jesus' mighty name and asks him to work, to rescue, to bring justice, to protect, and to dip his hand into this world and change things. 
Some of you brothers and sisters, you've been around a minute. The cultural winds shift every generation. New concerns, different manifestations of pride, depravity, and brokenness. One constant remains the same. One thing will always be true. A change of heart brings the change that you need. If we truly believe that, we will repent and look forward to the day of the Lord. We will pray as we are commanded and as Joel has modeled for us. So my friends, this morning, would you just take a moment just where you are? Think of the things that you need to change. That you desire to change. What are the concerns and the cares of your heart? What makes you anxious and frustrated and angry? What sin cripples you? Whose heart are you praying for? Would you pray with me that God would bring change in our life and in our world? Pray with me. Father, that is our big prayer request this morning. God, would you change things? God, there are some here perhaps who are single marked by a season of knowing how to leverage time. Maybe they feel frustration, discontentment. Oh God, bring change in their life. Lord, some of our marriages perhaps hanging on by a thread. We don't look at each other the way we did. Our affections are far off. Things are dull and difficult and fractured. Oh God, bring change. Some of us struggling physically, financially. Oh God, bring change and healing. God, many of us crippled by secret, dark sin that we can't shake. Oh God, bring change. God, we look at a world, at a state, at a country where there is no love for you and your word, for a community that knows nothing but brokenness and joylessness, who are desperate, who don't know the joy and the warmth of Christ. Oh God, bring change. God, in the Brainerd Lakes area, there are many here this morning who are not in this building. In our communities, our neighbors, our co-workers, God, they are struggling. They see, perhaps, the futility of their worldview. They see that this life isn't bringing joy and satisfaction. Oh, God, bring change to their life. God, our church, Lakewood. We confess that it's so easy as a church to be comfortable. To do the opposite of Joel. 
and to critique and to complain and not jump in and disciple and serve and see our ministry. Oh God, bring change here to us. God, we confess that when we see the needed change in our hearts in this world, it's easy to perhaps feel overwhelmed, to be angry and bitter, to feel shame and guilt, perhaps. So we claim and confess the name and the work and the gospel of Christ this morning. We confess that real change has always come through the Messiah, this Savior. We confess that real change can happen as hearts are changed in you. So Lord, would you give us an excitement and a zeal, a fervor, a joy, a confidence that as we live the lives you've given us, as we rub shoulders with the people you've put in our lives, as we impact the world around us just as it was with Acts, God, you will change the world. And in your kindness, you've invited us into it. So Lord, may we be the change that we seek and desire. Use us in mighty ways, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.